Welcome to today's St. Paul's Church of the Voyager podcast. I'm Pastor Rob Fiesler, and I am glad that you are listening today. I sometimes wish that everyone in our congregation had a copy of this book. It's called United Methodist Questions, United Methodist Answers. And it's actually good for people who aren't Methodists as well. It's basically mainline Christianity, though there are some questions particular to Methodists. It was written by F. Belton Joyner, and it is a handy little resource. It includes responses to 78 questions. Usually the responses are about a page and a half, two pages. And one of the questions in this book is, what do United Methodists believe about evolution? Joyner responds, United Methodists do not always agree with one another on how God chose to bring creation into being. The Bible, however, is clear that creation is the work of God. As we move into week three of nine in our Think Again series, we're going to look more deeply into this question, and we are exploring this question because many Christians believe that the theory of evolution is incompatible with the account of creation that we find in Genesis. And I should say the creation accounts, plural, that we find in Genesis. But more about that in a moment. But those who take a more literalist approach to the Bible often adopt some version of what we call scientific creationism over and against the theory of evolution. During my youth ministry days, some of the the teenagers would tell me that they did not think they could be Christian because they accepted the theory of evolution. And so this is really important for us as we think about those who uh, may find this as a barrier to Christianity. So before we get to our scripture reading this morning, let me say that that Christians of the Roman Catholic and mainline Protestant varieties, Lutherans, Methodists, Presbyterians, uh, have long affirmed what we call theistic evolution. The idea that the, the universe was created by God and included the conditions that science has identified as the evolutionary processes. And so, as, as Joyner writes, Many United Methodists believe that the how questions of creation are beyond the revelation of Scripture and are therefore appropriate for scientific inquiry. We, like most Christians, affirm that the Christian contains all things necessary for salvation, but it does not contain everything we need to know about everything. So it doesn't contain what we might need to know about geography or, or history or sexuality or thermodynamics or quantum mechanics. It never intended to address those matters. That's not what the Bible's about. So before we go any further into this, 
Let me read it to you from Genesis 1, verses 1 through 5, the first day of creation, and then the sixth day of creation, Genesis 1, 26 through 28. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep. Well, a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Now, keep that in mind. It's all watery, There's, and land comes after the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was go good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the seas, uh, the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. Now keep that in mind, animals created before humankind. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Following worship last Sunday during our Dig Deeper discussion, two aspects of this passage were highlighted as we uh, discussed the question that was the focus last week. Does God cause natural disasters and other misfortune? First, we learned that the language of Genesis 1 uh, is in the Jussive voice, J-U-S-S-I-V-E. When God says, let there be, on each of the six days of creation, the language is less of a demand and more of an invitation. Instead of God saying something like, I command light right now, or I call forth vegetation and animals right now, the Jussive voice is more prayerful, more bidding than it is demanding. And I don't know about you, but that sort of refines my understanding of how God works in bringing creation to be in Genesis 1. And this is a notable difference. This is why I was reading Dr. Lodal's book. This is a notable difference between how the Bible and how the Quran talk about how God creates. Maybe we'll talk about that a little later. But the second thing we talked about last week is, uh, is that we have a tendency to think of creation as perfect until... Adam blew it, right? And I use Adam, I, that uh, terminology specifically, because Adam is not a proper name. 
Adam means man or mankind in Hebrew. So I want to clarify that. But the vocation that God gives to the first humans in Genesis 1.28 includes the direction to subdue the earth, right? We all heard that. Which insinuates that creation was not perfect or complete. That there was something that was or needs doing by humans in order to enrich and improve creation even before the so-called fall. I mean, there'd be no need to do anything if it were perfect, right? So as I said a moment ago, there are, are more than one creation, there is more than one creation account in Genesis. Genesis 1 and 2 share two very different creation stories. And while some try to make them fit together, the mental gymnastics of that endeavor are truly incredible. Simone Biles could not do that trick. In our confirmation classes, we have an activity where students go through both stories to see how very different they are. Because they're smart enough to know that these stories do not match up. And we want them to know that because we don't want them finding out later on that we've misled them and lead them away from the church because we've been unreliable. So, just for a couple of examples, in Genesis 1, as we read, humankind, male and female, are created at the same time on the sixth day of creation after vegetation on day three and sea and land animals on days five and six. We all heard that. But in Genesis 2, 4 through 7, Adam is created first before animals. And before vegetation. And his partner was created last. And you can see from this reading that I put up on the screen that the water comes up to water the ground. The ground already exists. It's the water that comes up. So it's the absolute reverse of Genesis 1. And while I will not go down this path much further, there are many creation stories in the Bible once we start paying attention such as Psalm 104 and John 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? I mean, that's, a, that's the exact same language as Genesis, in the beginning. Now, if this rattles you a bit, I just invite you to stick around afterwards for the discussion or to make an appointment with me to talk about it. That includes people who may be watching this online. But friends, the fact that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are put right alongside each other in our Bibles ought to tell us that they were never intended to be taken as some sort of literal explanation. The people who put this together knew that, that they didn't go together. The fact is that the Bible was written in a pre-scientific age. 
And so let's remember, I told you last week, let's pursue our faith with intellectual honesty and spiritual courage. Spiritual curiosity, rather, but which, of course, requires courage to do both of those things. But for those uh, who may be deconstructing the faith that they grew up with, I want to offer two ways of reconstructing in a way that does not compel an unnecessary choice between science and faith. So we've already talked about Scripture, right? Right now we're going to talk about tradition, what the church has, has believed and affirmed over time. And friends, the historic creeds of the church make it clear that Christians have never had a foundational or compulsory statement about how God created. That God created not how God created. So the Nicene Creed of 325 states, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. And then the Apostles' Creed, which is a little bit earlier than the Nicene Creed, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. So that God made is what we affirm, not how. And by using the word unseen, the Nicene Creed certainly makes room for the evolutionary process, right? And they, that was written in a pre-scientific age. They knew there was more to everything than meets the eye. Now, my favorite creed is actually from 1968. It's the creed of the United Church of Canada. And this is what it says. We are not alone. We live in God's world. We believe in God who has created and is creating. God didn't stop. <laughs> now, I would argue, though, that the earliest creeds did not require a certain belief as to how God created because the early Christians knew that the Bible has several creation stories. And the only consistent claim of, the, of those stories is that God made it, not how. Fundamentally and historically, a Christian is one who believes, among other things, that God is the author of creation. People can agree or disagree with that statement, but when I affirm that God is the author of creation, I am expressing my faith that our 13.8 billion year old universe is not the result of some freak accident. Now we're going to move into science a little bit, what we call reason. And, that, and, and what I want to say is that for people of faith, science itself can be a source for affirming creation as God's handiwork. In his book, First Contact, Mark Kaufman discusses the science of astrobiology. Anybody here already heard of astrobiology? Thank you. I, I knew there'd be one. But, but now you get to go tell people, hey, my pastor talked about astrobiology in church today. <laughs> who, who knew? Um, Kaufman writes this. Like scientists in other fields, astrobiologists have to consider why the universe is so exquisitely fine-tuned. 
It is a well-established fact that life could never have started or evolved if the laws of physics were not almost precisely what they are. So let me share a couple of examples of this for you, the ones I barely understand. Gravity is the organizing force of the cosmos, right? That's why we're not just flying out of our pews right now. But gravity is extraordinarily weak when compared to the electrical forces that hold together the electrons, protons, and neutrons in an atom. If the gravitational forces of the universe were even slightly stronger than they are, it is improbable that a stable solar system could have ever developed. I hope you're with me so far. The ratio of the strength of electrical forces in an atom compared to the force of gravity is 10 to the 26th power. That's a big number. A one, right, with, with 26 zeros behind it. First, folks, if this number were even slightly smaller, one less zero, nothing as complex as humankind could ever have emerged. Let me give you another number. 1.0013784. When I was doing math, we just, if we got beyond two decimal points, we just stopped and rounded up to one, right? But this is precisely how many times heavier the mass of a proton is than the mass of a neutron in the center of an atom. So this means that the weight of a proton and a neutron are virtually identical, but not identical. If a proton were even 0.1% heavier than a neutron, life and chemistry would not exist. It would be impossible. Okay, so that's the part I barely understand. But Kaufman gives a really helpful parable about this. Uh, the dilemma, uh, this parable describes the dilemma that astrobiologists face when they consider how the universe is so finely tuned. So a man, imagine you, perhaps, are facing a firing squad. And 50 expert marksmen are preparing to take your life. How do you like your odds? The word is given, and the 50 marksmen fire. And yet, amazingly, the man opens his eyes after the burst of gunfire and discovers that he is still very much alive. What happened? Either he was stupendously lucky or the marksman intentionally missed. 
So we exist either because we are stupendously lucky or there's some intentionality behind what we know. Now, it seems to me that whichever we decide upon, stupendously lucky or some intentionality beyond what we can know, don't both of those options require a massive leap of faith? I mean, an atheist leap in the direction that we're stupendously lucky, and it is stupendously lucky. Theists, people who believe in God, leap in the direction that something intentional is behind it, a higher power. That doesn't necessarily make you a Christian, but it does make you a theist. Uh, in his book, uh, The Christian Agnostic, Leslie Weatherhead writes the following, and it is a long sentence, quite impressive, but hang with me. It is incredible that considering our own powers of loving and our tender compassion for others, that we would find ourselves stranded on a lonely planet amid the glittering galaxies and terrifying immensities doomed to carry out on earth a, meaning, a meaningless round of insect activities determined by blind chance and impersonal forces, and at last condemned to perish into the dusts of the cosmos. In spite of all of our dreams, with no advantage gained from all of our suffering, with both heroism and cowardice, sacrifice and selfish, selflessness, lust and love, good and generosity, all brought down to one level of meaninglessness. Friends, if some people prefer to believe that we're stranded on a lonely planet and condemned to perish into the dusts of the cosmos, well, we need to respect their leap of faith in that direction. But we do not need to advocate an unnecessary choice between science and faith by insisting that Christianity requires the belief in any form of scientific creationism, which I would say is rooted in a misreading a misunderstanding of what the Bible is. The consistent testimony of Scripture is that God is the author of creation. And though it was written in a pre-scientific age, the writers of the Bible were clearly as bedazzled by the cosmos as astrobiology says we should be. That we are, that creation is, is miraculous. Still, it is a leap of faith to affirm, as one famous theologian has said, that creation reveals that God does not want to be God without us. And I'd go one step further and I'd say that this leap of faith seems slightly 
more rational to me than the idea that we're just stupendously lucky. Let's be a prayer. Holy God, the, the universe itself displays your handiwork. And those who wrote the words of our scripture clearly looked upon all that they saw and were amazed by what this universe is. Even more amazing, God, they were, uh, they were impressed with the belief that, that you are a gracious God that longs to give us life, to give us love, to give us goodness. And so we pray, God, that we would embrace that story as absolutely true. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.